Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is quite practical and contemporary that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in your daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that every one of us knows someone who can be defined as a difficult person. And if you don't, ask my kids. They probably would tell you you're looking at one. But joking aside, I think we all can think of someone who can be defined as a difficult person, someone that is maybe challenging even, or someone that rubs us the wrong way all the time. Now, difficult people come in all sorts of types and shapes, don't they? Some of them are aggressive. Some of them seem to know everything, and they will let you know too. Some of them seem to always contradict you, and they will even contradict themselves in order to contradict you. Others just seem to be out to hurt you, and it seems that that is their purpose. And we could go on and on and on. We could take hours to describe the different types of difficult people that we can encounter in everyday life. And in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about some of such people. In fact, our very enemies, those who are indeed set out to hurt us. He did not give us an exhaustive list. He did not go down the list and say, okay, there is this kind of difficult person, that type of difficult person, and here's what you do with this, here's what you do with that. Rather, he gave us a very, very basic and yet extremely profound teaching about that. He said, love your enemy. We need to love them. That is very clear. But the question can be asked, how? How can we do that? How do we love a difficult person? How do we love an enemy? 
And the Bible gives us some general principles, those general principles that we need to face just about every case of difficult person, as we can imagine. And I think those general principles are very important for us to understand so that we can understand how Jesus can tell us, love your very enemy. Love not just the difficult person, but the one who is devoted to hurt you. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to deal with difficult people. If you're dealing with the public, you will probably encounter some every day. Uh, someone that has a bad day or someone that is just not quite clicking with you, rubs you the wrong way at work or in school. And as we deal with such difficult people, usually we experience hurt, frustration, irritation, and perhaps a number of other things too. But whatever it is, it is very uncomfortable. So uncomfortable, in fact, that most of us would want to change something, either change the person or change the circumstances. We feel uncomfortable and we want out of it. We just want to, something to turn around so that we don't feel that feeling anymore. And there are some basic keys that are vital for us to understand. And one of them, as we're talking about today, is thankfulness. Now, what am I talking about? Well, here's a question. Are you thankful for the difficult people in your life? Ooh, that is a weird question. That is a strange question, but it is a very important question, isn't it? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's written, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. And if someone does evil to us, I would assume they're difficult people, at least in that particular set of circumstances. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, notice he's talking about people who do evil to us, and then it says, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I'm not saying something totally preposterous. I'm saying one of those paradoxical things that we find in the New Testament, in the teachings of Jesus. We are supposed, we are called to be thankful for difficult people in our life. Now why should we give thanks for them? Why should we have a thankful attitude for such things that are so uncomfortable and sometimes plainly unpleasant for us? Because when we deal with such challenges, we see things in ourselves that otherwise we could never see. And God now has the opportunity to change us, to shape us, to mold us more and more into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Are we unforgiving? Well, how do we know unless we have someone to forgive? If we have someone and something to forgive, then we can see whether we have in our hearts an unforgiving spirit or whether we are indeed forgiving people. And I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6 about forgiving others, and it's a very, very important aspect of being Christians. But we would never know unless we're tested in that, would we? What about intolerant? How do I know if I'm intolerant? Unless I have something or someone to tolerate from time to time that shows whether I have that tolerance or not. Or what about patience? How do I know if I'm impatient? Unless my patience is being tested in some way, maybe 
through circumstances, maybe through a difficult person that comes along the way and does test our patience. And let's talk about patience because in addition to thankfulness, patience is another one of those biblical keys that are very, very important as we deal with such individuals. James addressed Christians who lived in the heat of persecution. They were the Christians at that time that James was addressing were not just persecuted by the Romans, they were persecuted by the Jews, and sometimes were persecuted by the Greeks. And persecution at the time was fierce. Not as God's teaching that he gave through James to those people who had not just difficult people, but enemies that were persecuting them in a fierce way. In James chapter 1, it's written, Consider it all joy. Uh Uh-oh. That's a tough one. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Later on in chapter 5, he wrote, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he gives the analogy of a farmer who has to wait for the right season after he plants his crop. He has then to be patient and wait for the right time, a God-appointed time, to be able to reap that crop. And in verse 9 he says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So why would James write these things? What God allowed James to realize that believers would tend to react in the wrong way to such persecutions, to such adversities, to such circumstances, to such difficult people that they would encounter the enemies they would face that would want to hurt them. We tend to lose patience in those circumstances. Patience with the circumstances themselves and patience with the people around us. Sometimes we even tend to lose patience with God. And we cry out to God, how long, how long are you going to make me wait before you deliver me from all this? How long do I have to endure such provocations? How long do I have to endure these people rubbing me in the wrong way every day? James was inspired to exhort us to patience, to remind us that these tests and these trials are the tools that God used to shape our character, to mold us in the image of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, did Jesus Christ, was he willing to suffer for us? And we all know the answer, yes, he was. So the question now should be asked, are we willing to put up with the adversities for him? And I hope that the answer is just as much a yes. We are to be patient and patiently endure difficult people, trusting in God, and that's one of the keys. We need to trust in God, trust in his sovereignty, and trust in his timing. Realizing that he's in charge and he's using these circumstances for a very specific purpose. Then what does scripture tell us to do about it? Now here are some very important things that the scripture tells us to do and some that he tells us not to do. The key is that we need to take responsibility for ourselves. You see, we live in a sinful world, don't we? We're sinners, the other people are sinners. 
They sin against us. We sin against them. We need to endure them. Sometimes they need to endure us. If there is a person that we consider as a difficult person, chances are that if you look at it from the other side, we may be regarded just as much a difficult person too. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of the fact that we live in a world of sin. And that has its consequences. It has its results. Now, it becomes a problem, a very serious problem, however, when we only focus on the sins of the other person and not on our own. And that's why Jesus Christ taught us a very, very important, a very important lesson. He told us, all of us, as we read his word, he says, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye. Look at the beam in your eye. Now, you cannot read that passage and place the beam in the brother's eye regardless of how bad the behavior may have been. Every time you read the passage, the beam is in your own eye and the speck is in the other person's eye. But you might say, well, wait a second, I didn't do nearly as bad as the other person did. No, but your focus ought to be on yourself first and foremost as if you had the beam and then later on the other person as if they just only had a speck. So Jesus' teaching is that we need to start with us. We need to start looking at ourselves. And what do we look for? Now let me point out three, about three or four things that we need to really look for. The first type of reaction that people can mistakenly get into is a kind of a self-destructive type of reaction is to launch into a self-pity, sympathy need, victimism, poor me, type syndrome. Oh, 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 have you seen what so-and-so has done to me? Did you know what they say about me? Oh, that hurts. It makes me feel bad. Oh, poor me. Look at me. I'm a victim. Look at what they've done to me. You know, if we're not careful and we get embedded in that, that can very easily turn into a currency that we use to manipulate other people into giving us their pity, their attention, their focus. Because at first it works, doesn't it? Oh, look at what so-and-so did to me. Oh, poor you. And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we thrive in that little bit of a self-pity and, and the pity of the other person. But then I've seen people getting so stuck in there that every day of their life they had to play the role of a victim because they needed that feedback from the other people because they fed into that and it gave them a reason to carry on or a reason to feel self-justified. But that's a point. Self-justified, right? I am not the one who's wrong. They are wrong. And they're hurting me. They're the ones doing it. I have nothing to do about it. And in fact, what happens is that this creates a very serious problem. It leads us and it locks us into helplessness. Because I am the victim and I look at myself as a victim and only the victim, there is absolutely nothing I can do about it, is there? But if somehow I can step out of that, maybe I can find out that there is hope in the Word of God. There is hope and I can perhaps do something about the situation. Another thing that self-pity and victimism does is it makes us unforgiving. That's one way of holding a grudge against the other person. It displays a lack, of, a lack of trust in God. And it most often leads to serious gossip. 
Because then we need to share why we are such victims. We need to share with others why we feel so pitiful about ourselves. What is the solution to that? Matthew 7 tells us, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged yourself. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when the beam is in your own? The solution to that is that we should look at ourselves first. Realize that in just about every circumstance, we have something that we can do. If nothing else, we can turn around in the way we respond to the offense. You know, I asked people around as I was preparing for, for this sermon, and, and, and I was looking into the issue of difficult people, and I said, you know, what would be your main question about difficult people? And I said, how do you make them stop? Well, that's natural. We would all like that, Right? But that would imply that we should manipulate them and control them, and that is being a difficult person ourselves, isn't it? Because that's what we don't like about people doing with us and to us. We cannot pretend to find a formula to change the other person. And oftentimes, we cannot even change the circumstances. But we can certainly change the way we react to them. We can certainly change the way we perceive them and respond to them. Another pitfall is getting ourselves, allowing ourselves to get into resentment or the idea of getting even, you know. Oh, man, this person has been rubbing me the wrong way. I'm going to let them have it today, you know. Don't talk to me today because I'm going to lash out at you. Or brooding resentment within us, inside us. And that will mount and mount and mount. In the worst case scenario, have you ever heard in the news of people that we're wonderful people, Boy Scout leaders, you know, active in their church, uh, active in their community, and then one morning they got up and went to the office, shot two or three people, and killed themselves. What happened? What caused an individual like that to come to such extremes? Well, it's not just the moment. When something like that happens, those people have been brooding inside and holding inside and piling up and piling up and piling up until finally they exploded with an incredible, incredible power, energy, violence. That's how those things happen. You know, some people think that they get up in the morning and all of a sudden they go insane, you know, the morning when they get up. But actually that is something that goes over a period of time and builds up within us. And as we build up resentment within us about what people do to us, things, things will get worse and worse and worse. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have a very, very important teaching. In verse 25, we are told to speak the truth to one another. Not withhold, not withhold the truth. To share the truth with one another, but to share the truth in love. We're told in verse 26 to be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Later on in verse 29, we are told to let no unwholesome word or no um, useless or not constructive word proceed from our mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then he goes on by saying that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, why such teachings? 
Well, you see, if someone rubs us the wrong way and stimulates that, that uh, frustration and sometimes anger within us, we should not allow that energy to pent up inside or else it's going to become a delayed bomb. It will explode one day. What we need to do is to tackle the issue pretty much right away. If the immediate moment is not a, a wise time to tackle it because maybe we would overreact or something like that, we can set a time to do it at the earliest convenience or the earliest best time. But we should deal with it as the issues come up. We should not brood resentment within us. We should not hold these things inside. We should not hold that anger. Now, there are some keys in that particular passage. First of all, fal falsehood. It says that we should not speak anything false. We should speak the truth. Now, what, what, what's the deal with falsehood? When, when we hold things inside and we brood resentment within us, the story becomes bigger and bigger, right? And pretty soon it's no longer the truth. It is a false perception. It is a false scenario. It's something that was this big and now has become this big within our minds and heart, and therefore it's no longer the truth. The scripture says, do not believe that. Do not speak according to this false perception. Speak the truth. And the truth needs to be measured. It needs to be sized appropriately. We've got to be fair. We need to understand the other side. In order to be able to speak the truth, we also need to listen carefully. Listen carefully to the other side and what the thing is that they're trying perhaps to communicate by doing or saying the things they do and say. We need to evaluate their point of view as well. We don't have to agree with it, but at least we need to listen so that we can understand what the truth of the matter is. The truth of the matter could be that, hey, they're just having a bad day and they are wrong. But at least they understand it. But I only understand it if I take the moment to listen. If I don't tune out immediately. Allow yourself to be angry, says the scripture. Well, that kind of sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But here are some keys about that. Without taking too much time, I think we can understand it very simply by realizing anger as an emotional energy within us. There is a right and a wrong use of that energy. God himself says that he gets angry, but he doesn't sin. So that means that we can use the energy in a non-sinful way. But if we project the anger, or better yet, if we internalize the anger and reverse it toward ourselves to pile it up inside, it's a wrong use of that energy. And the effect that I described before of piling up and penting up of the energy until it finally explodes as, explodes as a delay bomb will take place. The other wrong or sinful use of that anger energy is to lash out or vent at another person. You know, when you lash out and you vent to the other person, you never resolved anything. Actually, what, you, what you're doing, you're creating another problem because now that person is either defensive or resentful because you lashed out at them, you vented at them. So then what is the right use of that energy? Well, tackle the problem to bring the problem to a solution. You see, God created us with the ability and the capacity to experience the energy, the energy we call anger, so that we have the extra strength, the extra energy, the extra oomph that it takes to tackle a serious problem, a difficult problem, and bring it to a solution. And we can run hundreds of examples about that. But one that I often like to use is MADD, M-A-D-D. It's an, an association, it's an organization. It was founded by a woman whose son was killed by a drunk driver and she found out there was no law against driving drunk. So she got mad. That's why they call that organization M-A-D-D, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. She got mad, she got upset. 
And she probably went through different stages in her anger. That's fine. But then eventually what happened is that she and other people with her turned the anger, turned the energy into saying, wait a second, we got to make a difference. And she became so relentless and so pushy in some ways that people in the government had to start listening. You see, she took the energy and she revolved that energy to resolving an issue, to resolving a problem, and to bring that, to bring some solution to the problem. That's not a sinful way to use the anger. Jesus did that at the temple. And we can go on and on with, with examples. But speak the truth in love for edification and not to tear down the other person. If you find yourself speaking in such a way that it tears down the other person, you are becoming a difficult person yourself. And you know that God in Ephesians 4 defines that as a sin. So you might want to back up a second, take a moment... Let the anger diffuse a second and then tackle the problem. Or better yet, let the anger reorient itself toward the problem, not the person. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, we are reminded, never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Every time we try to get even with somebody, we are actually stepping in a place that belongs to God. God is the only one that knows, truly knows the hearts of the people and knows how to give retribution in a fair way, in a right way, in a proper way. He also is the only one that can account for repentance in those people because we wouldn't, most likely, if we are upset with them. We read before in 1 Thessalonians that we are told to see that no one repays another with evil for evil. So the idea of getting even is definitely not a biblical approach. We should be on guard, however. As Luke 17 tells us, be on guard. If your brother sins, and this is a perfect, beautiful balance in here. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Don't avoid the issue. Don't hold it inside. Deal with it. Face it. Talk about it. But don't talk about it in such a way as to lash out at the individual, to attack the individual. Talk about it so that reconciliation can take place. Talk about it so that the positions are clarified, the interests in, in, in both parties are clarified. And with that clarification, maybe we can understand one another and find a common solution, if possible. If possible. If the person repents, forgive them. And if he sins against you many times and returns against you, uh, to you many times and say, I repent, forgive them. Jesus said, put no limit on that. So no self-pity and victimism, no resentment, getting even, lashing out, getting back to them. Another pitfall is the pride, the denial of responsibility. I cannot be wrong. They need to be wrong. I cannot. Our pride may get in the way and cause us to refuse to see the other person's perspective. After all, hey, how can it be that I'm wrong? Isn't that the way we tend to think? And sometimes we do that. Proverbs 11 tells us something about that. It says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. In James chapter 4, verse 10, it's written, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he, he will exalt you. But if we exalt ourselves, then we're going to find out we're going to be lowered to where we belong. 
In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 is written, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. On the other hand, and here's the solution, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Now that may sound kind of harsh, especially if we perceive ourselves as the victims of something that is disturbing or you know, annoying. Someone rubs us the wrong way all the time. It's kind of difficult for us to think in these terms, but think about the character. Think about the mind of Jesus Christ that, we will be, that God will be shaping within us as we are in the process of learning that. As we are in the process of learning and say, okay, this is happening in my life, and this annoyance is coming up. Why? Why is it annoying me? What is it in me that God is showing me that is causing this reaction? How I should rather react those questions will lead to a number of thoughts, to a number of uh, different circumstances, depending on the individual and what God is doing in you at that particular moment. Sometimes it might show you that you need to listen more to the other party. Sometimes it may show you that you just need to learn to tolerate and, and be patient. Sometimes it will help you to understand what Jesus Christ had to put up with. Or sometimes what God the Father and God himself has to put up with, with us every day. And how much patience he is expressing and, and demonstrating and showing toward us as we constantly get ourselves in trouble. Whatever the lesson is, there will be something to learn. The final pitfall, not as common, but sometimes devastating, is when people give themselves to false guilt. And that is when someone reacts by taking all the blame for someone else's sin. A very crucial situation occurred in England, and I saw one in the army in Italy. There was a man in my squad who did this similar thing. But what these two people did is they, they were abused by somebody, which is a very serious issue. And more would need to be said about abuse and of that kind, of that sort. Uh, including the protection of the abused individual. But in that particular case, both of these people took the blame on themselves. And the one in the army, he was very self-destructive. He started cutting himself all over his place, all over his body. And strangely enough, the one in England did the same thing, started cutting himself. And when somebody asked him why, he says, it's less painful for me to have physical pain than to realize how bad I am to deserve such abuse. You see, it may not be as common, but when it happens, it can come to devastating proportions. Scripture is very clear. Ezekiel 18, find, we find in Ezekiel 18 the rebuke of God toward Israel because there was a proverb in Israel that was actually offensive to God. And the proverb in Israel is that the fathers do something and the kids face the consequences. So God says there will no longer be a proverb like that in Israel because the man who sins is the one who is going to pay for his sins, not someone else. And I think we need to understand that as we live in a fallen world, that we live in a sinful world, sometimes those consequences reverberate 
But God will not impute them on us. If someone else has sinned against us, we should not take all the blame and the fault. Maybe we reacted the wrong way. That's fine. But we can, we can take responsibility for our own. And our own may be the reaction to it. Our own responsibility may be the way we may have provoked it. But sometimes abuse is not provoked. It's, it just comes because the, the situations are that way. But sometimes I, I know I have provoked some other individuals and I got some slack for that. Well, that is my responsibility, is that initial action. It's not what they do. Or my responsibility may be the way I react to that. But it cannot be my responsibility what they did. That is their responsibility, and they need to face it with God. And Scripture is very clear that no one can carry the guilt or sin of another except for Jesus Christ who carried upon himself all our sins to the cross. That's the only exception. Even if we tried, we cannot carry anybody else's sin but our own. So just like we cannot expect to change the other person, we cannot expect to take their blame and guilt for their actions upon ourselves. Truth will make us free from all these things. The truth of God, the truth of the circumstances will make us free from the self-pity party. And the victimism will make us free from the resentment and, get, and the desire and the temptation of getting even. will also make us free from pride and, and the denial of responsibility. The truth will make us free from the false guilt and we may call upon ourselves. And will lead us to what? It will lead us to growth, to transformation, to change. Because we give ourselves and our lives in the hands of God and God will use those circumstances to mold us and shape us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So God's way of dealing with difficult people is very simple. Understand and believe that all things work out for the good of those who love God, including being exposed to difficult people. Romans 8 is very clear. Through them, we can understand much more about ourselves because they will bring out reactions and responses in us that otherwise we will probably never even see. Realize that we are difficult people ourselves for someone else. That just like other people rub us the wrong way, sometimes we rub other people in the wrong way too. We cannot change the other person, but we can certainly change the way we respond to them, not in our own strength and effort, but because of the presence of Jesus Christ in us. The perfect model of what it means to respond in a godly manner to difficult people. That includes all of us. Take responsibility for the way you react and respond to the difficult people, not for their actions, but for your reactions. We are called to forgive those who have sinned against us, just as we have been forgiven by God. And this does not mean that we condone everything, because the Scripture, the Word of God, also calls us to, if we're given an opportunity, when we're given an opportunity, calls us to rebuke to inform the other person, hey, what you're doing is hurting me. What you're doing is wrong. Are you considering the consequences of this action? You know, you told me this and this and that. That really hurts. But sometimes we're not even given that opportunity. Then be patient. We should not hold grudges and resentment, or rather deal with issues as they present themselves, and we have the opportunity to do so. Speak the truth but in love for the purpose of edification, of helping out, of building up the other person, not tearing them apart or putting them down. 
Throughout the entire process, God says, keep humble and let God take over. Realize that he's in charge. And if we are facing the circumstances that we're facing, there is a reason behind them, a worthwhile and a valid reason. We can indeed love even those difficult people. In fact, we can indeed love even the enemy. If we train ourselves, and if we allow God, actually, I should say, to train ourselves, to train us, to see and recognize the image of God in them as well. To see and recognize that they are too children of God, perhaps still being called, still being formed, but still, nevertheless, children of God, ultimately. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who makes it possible in you and in me and all of us. And it is in him that we need to confide and find our strength. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the fact that you are a righteous God and a very, very loving God. Your love is toward us is infinite, Father, and we can rely on it. We can count on it. We can bathe ourselves in it and feel your embrace and feel your presence, your closeness with us. We thank you for that. And let us find reassurance in your love when we find ourselves dealing with difficult circumstances and difficult people. Help us to realize and understand that we, too, sometimes are difficult with others. Help us to react and respond to the challenges and the provocations of this life in a sinful world with a godly attitude, with an attitude that reflects your character and your presence in us. Help us to deal with the issues, not run away or shun ourselves from them, but rather face them and deal with them in a timely way and in a proper way. To seek reconciliation and peace everywhere as we are able to. And to release and relinquish what we cannot control to you. Because you are a sovereign God. And you are in control in everything that happens in our life. You know every single atom, every single cell of our bodies. You know all things that occur in us, to us, and around us. And we know that you love us because you gave your son for us. So thank you, Father. Thank you for the difficult circumstances. Thank you for the challenges as well as the blessings because it all works out for good in the end. We ask it all and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.